This is The Mystical Positivist, a radio show dedicated to the application of reason in the pursuit of spiritual practice and development. It consists of commentary, book reviews, interviews, and discussion in and around the local and larger spiritual community. The thesis of the show is that rationality is in no way the antithesis of deep mystical experience. In fact, we assert that it is a necessary ally. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me in the following presentation is my co-host, Dr. Robert Schmidt. Rob is the director of Taiyu Meditation Center and founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Mini Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol, California. This week on the show, we feature a pre-recorded conversation with Diana Rowan, author of The Bright Way, Five Steps to Freeing the Creative Within, published this year by New World Library. Diana Rowan is a creative alchemist and founder of the Brightway Guild, a virtual learning environment dedicated to transforming and inspiring a global community of creatives. The classical inquiry of what makes a good life has driven Diana from her youngest years, and sharing her hard-won discoveries with others is her mission. Having recovered from a soul-crushing case of stage fright and other challenges, Diana believes that by shining light on the darkness we fear, we can all become courageous purveyors of bright knowledge and live the good life. Diana was born in Dublin, Ireland, to college student parents, setting the stage for a lifetime of lively learning and seeking. Soon thereafter, her father became a diplomat for the Irish government, taking his family all over the world in a cosmopolitan pilgrimage. Respect for the arts has always been second nature in Diana's family, along with a deep streak of mysticism embodied by her astrologer mother. This unusual combination of intellectual seeking, cultural bridging, mystical opening, and artistic engagement are the hallmarks of Diana's life, whether that be in composing music, teaching, writing, or choosing a wine. Diana holds an MM in classical piano performance and a PhD in music theory. Diana Rowan, welcome to the Mystical Positivist. Thank you. Well, it's great to have you uh, with us. And I'm going to ask you a, a slightly modified question. Um, uh, we usually have a particular question, which I'll, I'll uh, uh, offer you in a moment. But um, I, um, well, I'll just go ahead and, and ask it, but then I'm going to qualify it. And the, the question is an invitation for you to um, go back in your mind to childhood and youth and talk about some experience, if there's something that comes up, that you could say prefigured or was a harbinger to this book that we're talking about today, The Bright Way. And, I, and um, the, the qualification is a lot of the book um, especially in the beginning, talks about a particular experience that you had, um, which I'm sure we're going to get into is, as we go through this conversation. But I don't want to, I don't, I'm, I'm inviting you to look at something other than that, which, which occupies such an important part of the book and your framing of, of the bright way. So are there any such experiences that sort of, in retrospect now, you could say, you could point to and say, oh, this was younger Diana um, configuring 
something, some experience that I could um, say now uh, prefigured this direction of your life? Yeah. Um, you know, last year I was in Cyprus where I grew up during all my high school years and we were having an impromptu reunion of some of my closest friends and we had not all been all in the same room for 30 years. We'd all seen each other, but we hadn't all been together. Mm. And we were all talking about, you know, our various things that we were really interested. I was talking about creativity and spirituality and others were talking about their various subjects. And I was like, what did we talk about, you know, when we were 14? And they were like, you were pretty much talking about exactly the same thing. <laughs> so I remember, you know, back in the day, yeah, even when I was a teenager and possibly younger, um, I've always been fascinated with this interface between creativity and spirituality and philosophy. So I, I, I and you have, and you have the my 14 year old self. And, and you have a confirmation from 30 other people, too, or 29 other people. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, that's, that's, that's a great cool. question. <laughs> is, is that what you were asking? Something like that? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's that's right on. Well, um, that, of course, suggests because the. Um, the incidents in your life that that it pre uh, that figures so powerfully in your book, The Bright Way, um, took place on Cyprus. Um, and so perhaps you don't have to jump right into that or you can, I mean, you could set, it, set up the, you know, set up the scene and your background up to that point and then sort of tell our listeners um, what was the instigation for this very interesting path that you described yourself taking in the right way. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny. I actually live on Cypress Street in Berkeley, but Cypress <laughs> like the tree. You know, it's spelled differently, but it sounds exactly the same. Right, right. <laughs> so I'm still, I'm still on Cypress. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, you know, even the way that I uh, was born, I think, uh, set me up for this. You know, my parents both come from Belfast in Northern Ireland, and um, they grew up in a time where there was a, a great deal of strife and division. And at the same time, you know, they always were very focused on on what they would call the arts and what I think of as creativity in general um, as the highest things that people can work towards. And so for me, it's not just about music and fine art and things like that. Creativity to me is when you directly engage with something. So whenever you directly engage, you put your energy in that thing and transform it forever. And I was really conscious of this even as a child. My parents were college students when I was born. They were still college students. And, um, you know, uh, a friend of my dad said apparently I was conceived on the grounds of Trinity College, but we'll keep that quiet. <laughs> <laughs> and Trinity College actually has one of the very oldest harps 
around. Um, mm. And my dad really wanted to name me Diana, which was very unusual at the time for an Irish child to be called. In fact, the priest didn't want to baptize me because it was a pagan name. But he really held tight to the idea that Diana was a strong name for a girl. And he persevered and won out, obviously. <laughs> and, you know, it's interesting that Diana is the goddess of the hunt and her symbol is a bow and arrow. And that's exactly where the heart comes from. So, you know, there were always these kinds of resonances that happened over and over again, like many, many layers of of culture and mythology and art and meaning um, wrapped up in struggle as well. You know, my parents being from Belfast right away, that was adding a certain vibe to my life. I remember as a small child, you know, we would go up to Belfast and there were armored vehicles everywhere, machine guns everywhere, you know, metal detectors everywhere. And then my dad became a diplomat for the Irish government and we started living all over the world. So then we started going to all these different countries and I would enter these countries, you know, as, um, as a stranger in many ways. And yet I felt very comfortable. I'm like a triple Aquarian, so I'm, I'm okay with that kind of stuff. I don't mind, you know, moving around a great deal. And so as I got to look at all these different cultures, you know, we first went to Washington, D.C., then we went to Brussels, then we went to Cyprus. My dad lived in the Lebanon as well. Then they all went to Iraq, and I went there many times as well, Bulgaria. You know, I got to see these universal things about humans, because, you know, as soon as you go somewhere, you try to make sense of where you are, and so you notice what's familiar and also what's different. And what's familiar starts to turn into something quite universal in character. You're like, oh, these are certain things that all humans want. All humans want to feel connected. They want to feel that they matter. They want to feel that people care about them. And creativity, I found, was something that manifested in all cultures in fascinating ways. Oftentimes the most fascinating ways to me was how did they act creatively and it could be their architecture it could be the way they dressed it could be their language whatever it was it was super fascinating to me so i would say all these layers yeah they really added up to the book what the journey is with the book so i get the impression that you had lots of demonstrations of creativity growing up and that you're your parents' circles in, included a lot of diversely creative uh, artists, uh, probably uh, uh, intellectuals, musicians, and, and writers, and the like. Yeah, we were we were just so lucky in our upbringing. I mean, just from the youngest age, I was exposed to people at the highest levels of their respective fields, and you know the diplomatic service tends to get a lot of invitations to amazing concerts and art galleries and book readings and uh, panels about politics, uh, a lot of understanding about history. So firsthand, you know, I got this kind of education. And in particular, I got helped out when my mom took away the TV because we were all getting addicted to it, she saw. There's five of us children. I'm the oldest one. And so she uh, she removed it from us. And 
my parents have a great library of books. And so we would just go through the books then, you know, there was no internet in those days. And we had a piano. So then I became a pianist from that. And uh, yeah, you know, I, I credit them a huge amount for what they they did for me in terms of what they exposed me to. That's why I dedicate the book to them. Mm-hmm. Well, so um, this background um, doesn't surprise me, um, uh, given what you what uh, the wide, if, if nothing else, the wide variety of quotations that you use throughout your book, The Bright Way. But um, but tell us a little bit about. You mentioned that uh, when the TV went away, the piano suddenly apparently acquired a new interest or fascination for you. Tell us about how how that moved you and how your relationship to music developed. When I started playing music, I really felt like I had entered a golden world. I really felt like things were true. I When I would play, I would feel so much. It just felt like an intense connection to something super real. I didn't how, feel like how old I was, were you at this time? You, you know, about? initially I started playing when I was about six years old in Washington, mm-hmm. D.C., but then we moved, and always when you move, you know, there's a bit of chaos. So it was really when I was eight years old in Brussels, that mm-hmm. Brussels, Belgium, that I started studying very seriously. But even before then, I would uh, I would definitely play around on the piano. My mom plays the piano. That's why we had one. And I got such strong feelings from it. I got strong feelings that just said, this is real. You know, and in, in those days, I couldn't put words to it like I do now. I mean, now I know I was accessing the deepest part of me. I was accessing my true self when I played. There was no barrier. And I was in that world of my true self and in that dimension where all dimensions connect. But as a child, it just felt like, oh, when I do this, I feel really good. And I feel intense, but peaceful at the same time. (laughs) Well, I'm going to just uh, interrupt this um, uh, timeline for just a moment because you just used a phrase that is repeated throughout the book so many times, my true self. So um, uh, one of the questions I had, and I would have asked it later, but since it's just come up here, <laughs> this is the time to do that. Can you, can you speak a little bit more about what you mean by your true self? Because you, I mean, the book is subtitled five steps to freeing the creative within but you frame that in terms of returning to your true self is the phrase that I, is frequently used in the book. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, to me, the true self is that timeless essence that is you, like your soul. And I do believe people have souls. But even if you don't believe you have a soul, I think there is a human quality that has great dignity inside you and you possess that dignity regardless of your circumstances. Things like ego are not your true self. So your ego is another layer 
that's on top of your true self and we do need it to function as humans it's part of our agreement i think that we have an ego so i don't really believe in um trying to absolutely obliterate the ego i definitely think it needs to be tamed a little bit but i don't believe in destroying the ego completely and permanently um i think oftentimes people identify with their ego as if it's them and it's not really it's just more their sort of personality at the moment it's not that true essence that is the timeless thing that you were when you were born and will be until the end of your life so for me your true self is that very deepest consciousness of you if that makes sense okay so you just described how um as you as you became more um drawn into making music and learning to make music you were finding that um sense of what you're calling your true self um during that process so continue the story if you will yeah so as with many people who do music amongst other almost any other creative endeavor the more i committed to it the more i started externalizing the experience it didn't become so much about what i felt about it but what i hoped other people would react to about it i began drawing my ego into the situation a lot more than my true self and so i became really concerned with other people's feelings about what i was doing did they think i was talented did i they think i was exceptional and slowly slowly i began to lose touch with my reasons for making music and it became totally about other people how they reacted to me that's what i concentrated on and i'm not blaming them it's that i did that you know when we say oh well other people's expectations are crushing me it wasn't really that at all i was just allowing other people's expectations to be my benchmark for my value and so i feel like yeah it was a journey away from the internal experience and more into the external experience. Now when you describe that in the book that actually happened at a fairly young age, right? Yes. That 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 this was something I mean it it even when you use a word like gradually uh it yeah. seems like it, it seems like uh I guess the way I would describe it is other factors just factors that we have in growing up seem to intercede with your uh connection with your musical uh uh experience right yeah you know um when i was studying at this point maybe you know from the ages of you know 8 9 10 then it would be in the 80s the early 80s and music education is more broad now but back in the day uh exams were a huge part of it that was just what you did you took these exams and so i got put in for exams and competitions and at first i couldn't really understand what was going on i was like exam what are they examining me on exactly you know how do they what criteria 
you know, and I suddenly realized that I was literally being judged on my music. Mm. And I also knew if you want to be a professional musician, you need to do really well in these exams. So not only was it a bit of a trauma to be judged, but I had to actually do very, very well at it as well. And I'm not really competitive by nature. You know, I, I don't want to beat people. You know what I mean? I don't have that kind of bloodlust that some people do and that really does work well in competitions. You know, they get a kick out of it and, and that's the way they are. I'm not that way. You know, even in my ego, I'm not that way. <laughs> you know, I think in our true selves, none of us are that way. But, you know, in my ego, I'm not that way. And so um, it was very, very hard to enjoy anything about that scenario at all. Mm-hmm. So um, I think I think you're you're not alone, obviously, in uh, in responding to this. But but I want to point out and elicit any comment you want to offer on it. This is not just like a test in history or, um, or mathematics or something like that, that you may have little sense of being drawn to. This is something that you are just describing as, as feeding an important uh, part of you, if you will. Yeah, uh, I mean, that, it makes a difference. Huge difference. I felt like if I don't do well on these, I won't be allowed to play music. I won't be legitimate to do it. And now, of course, I know that if you want to play music for yourself alone in your living room, that is 100% legitimate activity. But back in the day, you know, what I believed was, no, if you don't do extremely well in all these uh, exams, competitions, uh, this will be taken away from you forever. And that's a pretty heavy thing for a young, high stake. A young yeah. Yeah, person like that. Very high stakes. Yeah. yeah. And I do believe that this is true for others, as you say, you know, regardless of whatever thing you're passionate about, I think many people feel this way, like unless they can demonstrate some kind of exceptional capability in it, then they aren't a real, you know, writer, a real athlete, a real whatever it happens to be. Yeah, uh, another comment you made in the, and I think when you're describing some of the folks that you work with and that comes up for me right now is that one way in which people confront this uh, is to withdraw from creativity and substitute with it listening to music or watching sports or uh, reading or, you know, and and they're sort of uh, settling for other people's uh, uh, products of creativity. And yet listening to music and creating music are extremely different experiences and leave you feeling very different at the end of that. Yeah, I really believe creativity is direct engagement with whatever you're doing. And so it is possible when you're listening to music to be very engaged with it to some degree, but I would like 
even more direct experience to happen. And there's an idea that, you know, with music, there's um, a professionalization of it. Like I, I'm only legitimate if I'm a professional or I should leave music to professionals. And I'm like, well, you know, we don't leave cooking to chefs only and think nobody else is allowed to cook except the professional chef, you know, with a cookbook. Uh, I don't know why music has been so taken over, for example, um, and other creative endeavors as well. You know, I think people will not feel legitimate in making art of, of many kinds unless they can parlay it into some kind of like cottage industry, like I'm going to get paid for it somehow, you know, or I'm only a legitimate writer if I publish a blog. These kinds of things to me are, um, they make me sad because I know that when people do engage creatively and it could be in anything, as I say, it gives them this tremendous sense of personal power. And I, and so empower in that they're connected to themselves, not power over anybody else. That's something else, you know, so different. But they get a sense of their own power in life. And I think when people are in touch with their, with their power, there's a type of confidence that comes out, you know, a faith in themselves where they have a lot more joy in their life and also a lot more resilience to deal with the hardships of life as well. I mean, it's a, it's a total win, <laughs> in my opinion. So, yeah, you know, I do feel this um, idea that creativity is only for a talented few is, is perhaps the biggest uh, misperception that right. I can drum up. I think everybody is so creative, and whatever it is that you engage with and, and transform, it will never happen again like that. The world needs it. I, I, I really believe this is your artistic voice. This is your creative voice, is whatever you're directly engaging with. And it's totally unique, and we, we need every single one of them. So um, this is very interesting, and it brings up another question uh, that came came up for me while reading the book, and that is that um, the way I'm hearing what you're saying is that you're suggesting that even people in fields of endeavor that may not be understood commonly to have an artistic element, um, nevertheless, can and will prosper if if they Definitely. do in fact engage um, creatively in the way that you outline in the book. So yeah. I'm thinking, yeah. So I'm thinking of you know I have a, a PhD in in anthropology, archaeology, a subdiscipline, and you know the the best moments of that engagement in my life were when I was doing something that no one else had done before and in collaboration with others archaeology is a very collaborative discipline you know you're always you can't you can't do it alone basically <laughs> or not much not well so 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 but that also must apply it seems to me even to 
I don't know, the ivory tower mathematician with pencil and paper. Um, so, so I want to encourage you to speak to that. Yeah, idea. definitely. So my partner works in the business world. And so he would read drafts of the book and would discuss ideas around it as to how they would apply to business. And there's a, a total correlation because the more creative you are in business and coming from an ethical place. So in the book, you know, step one is tap into your purpose and a purpose is always a very profoundly uh, positive thing. So when you come from a place of purpose that is positive and you creatively engage, incredible things happen in business. You know, I, I'm really fascinated how in the past history was taught more along the lines of battles and wars. This war happened, that war happened. And now there appears to be a movement towards seeing history more through uh, commerce and trade. Mm. Collaboration, right? <laughs> and Well, connections a, between people, yeah. Yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. So I see those as not far removed from traditionally thought artistic endeavors. You know, I, I do think that you can be absolutely creative in all kinds of scientific fields. And the more creative you are, always tapping into one of the principles of the book, which is sacred reciprocity, so that you stay in sacred balance with what you're doing, so that you're creating things that are life-affirming rather than life-destroying. Um, when, you, when you are creative in any field in that way, it's got to be a good thing. Yeah, I, I, I can relate to that. In uh, my professional life, I'm an engineering manager in a uh, a diversified uh, industrial manufacturing company. And I was just noticing the uh, a contrast this week in certain days where one day might be filled with sort of sets of meetings where I'm sort of playing a supervisory function or just informational. And it would be leave me not feeling particularly engaged. But then yesterday I had a series of meetings that were culminations of uh, creative activities that were bringing people together and affirming certain things or conversations with uh, potential customers or partners that were, again, bringing new information. And at the end of the day, I felt in myself in a very different way than I felt the previous day because it was uh, exactly as you're describing it. it. It was, there was a calmness, there was a centeredness, there was an integrity and a wholeness that was present because I was had that creative connection. So beautiful, yeah. You know, a friend of mine who works in the financial industry, uh, she was talking about how even for what may seem like the most mundane tasks, you can still be creative. So she said, for instance, her, her reports, she said, my reports are really beautiful. <laughs> they are so beautiful. You know, she formats them in such a way that they're a piece of art. And that brings pleasure to something which may seem like a drag, you know, a more mundane task where, no, when you, when you engage creatively, like she did, it actually it kind of raised her spirits and it didn't drain her. Mm -hmm. And this, this 
seems to hearken to one of the uh, perspectives that you offer in the first part of the, your book, which is that uh, creativity is in part about our perception of what we're doing or how what we're doing occurs to us. If I see what I'm doing as mundane, then it's going to... Then it will be. Yeah, then it will be. <laughs> well, and, I mean, we can make anything. We can make practicing music mundane. Right. Too. You know, absolutely. Uh, but the reverse is true, too. We can make anything uh, creative. Yeah, and I think um, you're really reminding me that it's always about process rather than just the product, you know. So we want to engage in the thing as an ongoing process, and that will keep our energy functioning at a sustainable level, in a level that feels good, not one that's depleting you. Mm -hmm. So... Yeah, in the perception of whatever you're doing in that very moment, you can change it at any time. It's always a process. It doesn't have to be, oh, I have to turn in this report. What a bore. Just think about that ending. It's like, no, no, the steps as I move towards creating that report, I can format it this way and that way. And, you know, um, you, I would, I believe, turn out with a better, better result. People are probably paying more attention to her reports as a result. Mm-hmm. And getting better results from that. Yeah, and there, there's a, to me, there's a sense of um, engaging with the heart that is uh, crucial for that transformation. Yeah. That that the heartfeltness, the love that's put in, the uh, value yeah. that's uh, uh, invested in the report, gives it something, gives it a quality that will if not consciously, unconsciously make a difference and really probably make the difference between whether someone up the chain reads it versus another mm -hmm. report in a certain way. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think, you know, it, it shows the person who's reading it that the writer cares. They care to make this an experience for them that's pleasurable and it humanizes the whole thing. So that we get back to connection again, rather than well, here's just this dry report that has, you know, is completely divorced from human experience. It's not. It's all about human experience. Mm -hmm. Well, so let me get back to your um, the story we we we've departed from a little bit here in terms of your own personal trajectory, and um, you described discovering that being tested and uh, having to perform in, uh, in a context of judgment of your performance was a uh, more and more, I guess, an inhibition to your continuing to find joy and um, creativity in your expression of, of music. And, there, and in the book, you relate uh, this one particular occasion, which sort of crystallized this as a challenge that, that in a sense, this book was written to um, describe your response to over many years and, and how you came to see what seemed like a failure as something very different. So talk, talk to, continue your uh, your life history trajectory. 
So in the book, I talk about uh, one of my worst performance experiences, and it was a nightmare experience. Sometimes I hear people say, oh, you know, it was such an awful experience. I, I just wanted to run off the stage. Well, this was a case where I did run off the stage. So what had happened was it was a pretty high-pressure concert. It was supposed to be the top students playing piano in Cyprus. Uh, I was the only representative of my piano teacher's studio at that concert. And my dad had come over from Baghdad to see it. And I was really nervous beforehand. And I come up to the stage. I'm just sweating my head off, shaking like a leaf and I start playing and I completely blank out. I have nothing to hold on to. I really can't remember how the piece goes. I have no idea. And I I tried to like force my body to do it just to do it automatically. So it's this mm -hmm. kind of sense where you kind of throw yourself in again, mm -hmm. but there's no consciousness. Like you really have no solid thing to hold on to. And at the same time, all these people are watching you. And I began hearing people laugh. And there were other people who were like absolutely stone silent. And I thought about my teacher and I thought about my dad. And I felt like such a failure. I felt like this is it. This, this is, it's over now. I can't, I can't ever go back. I can't ever go back to music. It's all over. And I ran right off the stage. And you also, in the book, say that this feeling of I can't ever go back to music continued. For quite yes. a, quite a time. Yes. So I did carry on with lessons, with exams, but I I did not perform anymore, and I tried to keep it secret that I had such bad anxiety. My teacher actually didn't know I had such bad anxiety mm -hmm. because I felt like if I have such bad anxiety, it's a sign that I'm not cut out for this. So I can't tell anybody about it. Mm -hmm. But then you know a public disaster like that would happen. So, you know, somehow I managed to get through all my exams, even though I was so, so nervous every single time I did those. However, there would usually just be one examiner, you know, mm -hmm. so somehow I could rally and pull it through. And um, it was never what I wanted, but I always managed to get through them. And finally, I went to Berkeley as a music major and a few months in, I was like, I just can't take this. I was like, I'm going to have a short, short life at this point, just from the stress of this all. I mm -hmm. am so miserable. I can't live this way. And I gave it up. I, I At that point, I gave it up. Because I had thought, well, you know, if I pass this exam, things will be better. And nothing ever changed. Well, if I get into Berkeley, things will be better. Like I kept thinking these magical things would happen based on these milestones that I would pass. Like, oh, if I get in, that means I'm good. So therefore, I won't be nervous. It made no difference whatsoever. In fact, it just raised the stakes, you know, the further I got along on my journey. So it was this 
horrendous experience of never having any relief. And so it was at that point where I was just like, you know, I just cannot take this anymore. And it was totally heartbreaking, but I gave it up. And I gave up music for four years solid. And I began working in psychology and social welfare circumstances, um, a battered women's shelter, a halfway house, a um, free clinic, because I've always been really interested in, in health, mental health, spiritual health. And being in those environments, you know, I wanted to understand, you know, how, how can people be helped? How can they be helped to feel better about their lives and themselves, their circumstances? And I had felt very lucky the way that I grew up in many ways, you know, getting exposed to so many different cultures and countries and great schools and all this. I had, you know, many privileges and I felt like uh, I wanted to, to give something back. And I also felt great sympathy for people who feel um, disempowered because I was completely disempowered and really disempowered myself, you know, but I did not know that at the time. Um, so working in those environments, you know, it always would come out that I did know a little bit about music somehow and there was always some <laughs> rickety old piano hanging around or something and I would show little things to people mm -hmm. and the effect that that would have on them was astonishing to me you know they would feel they would smile you know and you sit up a little bit more tall and I would see this power inside them and I was like huh that's really really cool you know this thing is making them feel better than any talk therapy that I could give, you know, obviously I wasn't very skilled at that time, you know, cause it was so young. So there's many talk therapies that are absolutely fabulous, but I knew just talking to people wasn't enough that I could give. So showing the music stuff, I was like, wow, you know, I was like, that's really interesting. You know, they enjoy this so much and I find it such torment. How strange, you know. <laughs> uh, but over over the years um, of seeing this repeatedly and hearing some pretty amazing stories from people about what music made them feel, I came to realize that when people engage creatively, it gives them an incredible amount of self-esteem and energy. And it gets them back in touch with their true selves. And slowly, slowly, you know, my roommates at the time, they they heard me play a little bit because I rented uh, a piano and they would ask me to show things. And so I would show them things on the piano. And then I thought, well, this is kind of fun, this teaching business. Uh, maybe I could have some lessons. Just And I spoke to someone on the phone and I told her, you know, I, I can play really advanced material, but I have a horrendous case of performance anxiety. And she was like, I think I can help you. And so I started taking lessons with this teacher. Her name was Emily. And it really 
was an about face for me because I was playing for my myself, which I had done in the very first place. You know, that's when mm-hmm. I loved it. You know, when I was a younger kid and playing just for myself before I knew what I knew then. Because uh, what I know now is yet something different from all of this. Mm-hmm. Um, but getting back in touch with, you know, why am I playing for myself? That really reoriented me back to a type of confidence that I hadn't known for a very, very long time. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the questions that came up to me in uh reading about this transformation or this, uh, the, the shift was that you described the, the performance anxiety as being the same energy that would be available for actually creative expression. And, yes. I, and I'm interested in how, how you see that <laughs> because, I, because it's a, uh, <clears throat> I, I had to think about that one and uh, I'm not quite sure I see that completely because the processes seem very different. (laughs) Yes. So back in the day before I learned how to manage my performance energy, um, my goal, my dream was to be bored on stage. I was like, what a luxury that would be. Wouldn't that be fabulous to just sit on stage and just be bored, just be so nonchalant about the whole thing. What a dream come true. Now I know that is totally not what you want to feel. You do want to feel a heightened sense of awareness. Mm -hmm. You do want to feel that energy that is performance energy. It's a very... Um, intense energy in many ways. It's a magnetic energy. It draws people to you. It makes you hyper-focused. So you really are superhuman for a little while. You can hear better. You can see better. Mm. Everything is functioning at a higher level. Um, The key is you have to manage it. If you don't manage this energy, it gets out of control in a split second and it becomes panic. And one of my favorite analogies is the garden hose. You can hold the garden hose right at the nozzle and it's really sharply directed. Or you can hold it way down and it'll be flopping all over the place and, you know, spraying everywhere. It's the same garden hose. Mm. And you don't want to throw away the garden hose like I initially wanted to and be bored on stage. That's going to lead to a totally lackluster experience for everybody. You do want that heightened awareness and you do want to make friends with that kind of energy and how you're going to make friends with it is you're going to learn how to manage it. Hmm. My Shakuhachi teacher describes a process of, uh, I should, I should jump in here because listeners may not know what a Shakuhachi is, which is the Japanese bamboo flute. Yeah. So my, my Shakuhachi teacher describes a, uh, using danger in other words taking a risk like um and this will come up in lessons quite a bit where it's a very sensitive instrument and so there's a lot of variability in the sound depending on the uh, angle of of your lips the tension of the lips and everything so there's a tendency to want to control that and to be safe and he's always trying to get me to like 
spin the the angle such that I'm losing the sound because yeah. he says that 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 on that precipice of danger uh, the audience doesn't know but it pulls them in because you're taking a risk you're actually taking a risk on behalf of the audience for something higher when you're vulnerable like that it's a very powerful energy it really is an energy that tells the audience i'm willing to show you my true self i'm willing to be here in front of you and show you the love that it takes to be my true self in front of you that vulnerability is so compelling it's a beautiful beautiful thing so i love what he's saying is like go ahead take that risk show them who you yeah. are. It's a true connection that's being made rather than just a recitation of something you already know and you may not be acting fully present with it because you can do it somewhat by rote. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's uh, the degree to which I am in control and the degree to which my I'm trying to be safe is the degree to which the energy of the sound really drops. And shakuhachi is uh, sensitive enough as an instrument that actually a tone goes down. Uh, and so you and and but it's also a more of a psychic thing. And so with a a master like my teacher, he can listen and immediately tell me what part of my body is I've lost attention in. Absolutely. And, and it's an amazing process. But it's but it's it's like as you say, trying to be fully present fully in your body and utilizing that presence to create is the, the, the space of mastery. And it's not mastery in the sense of accomplishing. It's like a sense of freedom or a sense of uh, uh, free flow. Yeah. I mean, it's really such a spiritual practice, right? It's, oh, I think I'm getting a leaf blower. Ah, they don't usually come at this time. Oh, no. Is it? I. Uh, it was something. Might have been a motorcycle. Yeah, okay. Okay. Um, yes, I find our create our creative endeavors, whatever they are, um, tend to teach us what we need to learn. They are spiritual practices in themselves. They show us just the areas where we're holding back, or the areas where we have an opportunity to grow. And for me, this is perhaps the most important part of creativity because it reestablishes connection. Mm -hmm. If we're simply retreading known ground, there isn't quite the connection there that's happening. There's not the type of growth happening that uh, the type of presence you're describing brings. Yeah, and you mentioned that in the book, that, that, uh, that the idea of connection, creativity and connection is, uh, I found a really compelling statement that our creativity cr connects us to life. And yes. that's, that's really what, that's the function of creativity or that's yes. the function of life, depending on how you want to look at it. It's that, <laughs> it's that full connection in the moment with living and life that flowers forth in creative expression. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I, I can't help but, insert here um, the uh, Buddhist idea of, of uh, what uh, Thich Nhat Hanh calls interbeing. That is to say, th this, this sense that 
everything in the universe influences everything else, often expressed with um, this image of Indra's net where every small jewel of each position in the universe has uh, an infinite number of facets that reflect um, light from each each jewel. So, so, um, so that kept that image kept returning to me as I was reading your book, The Bright Way, because because it seems to me that what you're talking when you're talking about connection and community, connectivity and community, that that's the fundamental, or that's one way to express the fundamental principle that you're addressing here. Yeah, Thich Nhat Hanh is a huge influence on me. And he was someone who really helped me get through the worst of my performance anxiety. It was oh, really? really? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm such a big fan of his his entire being <laughs> yeah and i actually had the pleasure of, of seeing him live uh he gave a huge talk in berkeley just after 9 11 happened you know mm. when people were um at that pivotal moment in time and thank goodness he came and just offered you know such presence and dignity it was a gorgeous thing yeah you know his very gentle way of bringing interconnection and presence to the table over and over and over again has 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 been one of my greatest influences for sure and i absolutely believe that no matter what perspective you take because i always love to as you know think about things throughout history and throughout different cultures is it true throughout history is it true throughout different cultures his perspective of interbeing stands every single test. You could be, you know, completely just a humanist where you don't believe anything um, spiritual, but you know you have an ethical perspective instead. You can, and interbeing makes sense. You know, we it, nature inter is, you know, as a grand example of interbeing, and then for all the spiritual paths, interbeing is constantly being uh, emphasized so for me interbeing is a reality and i feel like creativity is a way that humans interact with this interbeing in quite a unique way you know i do believe other creatures of course can be creative and are um but they're not building buildings, you know, and, and doing other things like that. They're doing other things that are amazing. You know, we can't jump as high as a cat, you know, for example, or see as well as many animals. But, um, yeah, yeah, I, I do think our human creativity is quite a unique thing on this planet. And it's an example of highlighting our interbeing. Well, I want to kind of bring our focus to the book the bright way and uh, uh we've been talking about in a sense the foundation about creativity but one of the i don't know if it's an irony or maybe surprises of the book is that i think our naive view of creativity is often that oh it's spontaneous you know it's like something you can't contain and yet the bright way is a process 
uh, and you used the word process earlier, so it's kind of interesting to uh, uh, kind of reflect back on that, that there can be a process in which we can invoke creativity more systematically and more richly in our lives. And it seems like you're at the, the book is a really a crystallization of your reflection on what your process was, but kind of turning it into a way that's uh, available to other people. We need to take a short break at the hour. You are listening to The Mystical Positivist. I'm your host, Stuart Goodman. Joining me is co-host Rob Schmidt. This week on the show, we feature a pre-recorded conversation with Diana Rowan, author of The Bright Way, Five Steps to Freeing the Creative Within, published this year by New World Library. Diana Rowan is a creative alchemist and founder of The Bright Way Guild, a virtual learning environment dedicated to transforming and inspiring a global community of creatives. Diana holds an MM in classical piano performance and a PhD in musical theory. In addition to piano, Diana is an Irish harpist specializing in lever harp. She provides concerts, lectures, teaching, and recordings to a worldwide audience. Welcome back to The Mystical Positivist. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick, joined in the following by co-host Dr. Robert Schmidt, director of Taiyu Meditation Center and founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Mini Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol, California. We now continue with our pre-recorded conversation with Diana Rowan, author of The Bright Way, Five Steps to Freeing the Creative Within, published this year by New World Library. Diana Rowan is a creative alchemist and founder of the Brightway Guild, a virtual learning environment dedicated to transforming and inspiring a global community of creatives. Diana holds an MM in classical piano performance and a PhD in music theory. In addition to piano, Diana is an Irish harpist, specializing in lever harp. She provides concerts, lectures, teaching, and recordings to a worldwide audience. The book is a really a crystallization of your reflection on what your process was, but kind of turning it into a way that's uh, available to other people. So maybe just at the, the top level of, uh, of what you were trying to achieve in the book, maybe let's, let's start with that and then get into some detail. Yeah. So for me, when we're going to manifest our creativity, it's about bringing together skill and magic. So skill is the uh, practical side of things, you know, the technique that's involved, the intellectuality, um, the very cerebral part of it and the, the physical part of it. Then the magic part is all the emotion and the intuition. We want to bring both those things together in order to manifest creatively. If we get stuck on either end of the creative pole, so we're only practical, or we're only intuitive, we won't really manifest in a very powerful way. It won't be as beautiful as it could be. And so in order to, can you hear the leaf blower? <laughs> I heard something there. Yeah, <laughs> but it's, it's not, not too loud for you. No, it's, it's no. not too bad. <laughs> okay, good. So in order to manifest, we want to have both the skill and magic side. And so for having, 
for instance, the skills side, I believe having a system really, really helps. Having a template for creativity. And so that's what the book details are these five sequential steps that you go through. And it's a circular process because as soon as you hit step five and you've reveled in that and completed your step five, you start right again at step one again, but a, a higher consciousness. I think we... We definitely do need a template or system or method uh, to be sustainably creative because if we only rely on intuition, that will only get us a certain distance. I think we have many examples of people who have wonderful ideas that never go anywhere Mm -hmm. or they feel a lot of things inside but are unable to express them. And all of those sensations they have are fabulous and valid. What they need is to up their skill level. On the other hand, some people are much more practical and they may have a system where they're able to work on things, um, but they lack sort of the artistry or the, the, the magical side, really. And so then I like to look at the five essential elements that are inside of the system. Mm-hmm. So we have the five steps on the outside, which are sequential, and then the five essential elements inside happen at all times. And they are based on the elements in nature, earth, air, fire, water, and spirit. And in the Bright Way system, they are artistry, inspiration, learning, technique, and community, you tap into those things to stoke up all of your creative juices, the more intuitive side that we might Mm -hmm. think of. So um, that's what the the system does is um, it supports you on the skill side and then also on the the magical side. Yeah, and I I think one aspect of the book as a guide for someone is that you fill it with activities that someone can participate in in order to make real for themselves the different steps and to kind of, uh, as it were, to pull the energy of a given uh, step into one's life and into one's awareness and into one's experience. So I think that's that's a nice, it seems like it's written for someone to like take and say, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to work with this. And then they they can follow the uh, steps and fill in the blanks with the things that are important to them. Absolutely. Yeah. I really wanted it to be a handbook or a workbook, something that people would literally make their own. So there's a lot of space in the margins, for example, Mm -hmm. where people can make notes and there's uh, diagrams that people interact with because I wanted to encourage people to take action, to do something about the thing that they're doing, you know, to actually not just read it, not just consume, but act with it. I wanted them to be creative with the book to basically model to themselves. What is it to be creative well, um, I mean, that's uh, it's interesting because earlier uh, you, know, you, you were talking about uh, um, your view of creativity. And, and one of the things that occurred to me was was that even reading itself is a creative act. And the more you put into the creativity, you know, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of the um, 
now recently deceased uh, uh, science fiction writer, Ursula K. Le Guin. And um, I only lit very late in her life um, came to realize that she wrote poetry. And um, one, of the, one of the things that, that, that I do, um, one of the hats that I wear in my life is to sometimes give talks at our spiritual bookstore and and uh, you know recently I was I've just kept coming back to this one one poem it's a page long poem not a not a huge thing but I've realized that that there, it's such a rich and deep uh, set of reflections and expressions that I could do a whole talk about spiritual aspects of this, uh, this single poem that describe her experience over a couple of days um, in her life. So, um, so this aspect of creativity that, you're, that you encourage people and give people tools to enhance um, works in all kinds of ways and not just in, you know, becoming a better musical artist or a writing artist. I want to get to your process about the writing artist, by the way, but, but, <laughs> but, um, but, but it seems to me that, that even on this level that people usually conceive of as being um, not so creative or very little creativity possible, actually there can be enormous amounts of creativity depending on how much of your energy, et cetera, you invest. That's it. Yeah, absolutely. It's the engagement. It's all about the engagement. I mean, in, in one day of your life, there's all the material you need in many ways, you know, if mm -hmm. you look deeply. And uh, there's another Thich Nhat Hanh thing, you know, look deeply. Mm -hmm. you know? When you look deeply, what do you find? You know, you can meditate on a plant and realize sacred geometry, cycles of nature, you can realize incredible things in your absolute immediate environment. And so it doesn't have to be, let's wait until all circumstances are absolutely in the perfect situation. I'm on a retreat and, you know, I've, I'm going to be creative then. You know, it, you could be creative right this second. You know, when I was writing the book, I was thinking a lot about the mother who has two jobs and two children, who feels like she would love to be more creative, but she doesn't have enough time. I want to talk to her and say, you can be creative right now with your circumstances. You don't have to change a thing except your level of engagement with those things. So, or even the type of engagement would be a better way of putting it, that you are engaged on a heart level with that thing without fear and knowing that you're connecting to the thing you're doing. When you're doing that job, you're really doing the job. You're really present. And so when you come home to your children, you won't be so worn out and you're available for them and you engage with them. Well, I'm, you're making me think of uh, uh, cooking because there's a, you know, until the last couple of hundred years, um, there was virtually, for, for the vast majority of the human race, there was nothing like a cookbook to refer to. You cooked by doing it. 
and you observed, you know, grew up observing how to how to cook. But many of us, you know, we we have. I mean, there's all this wonderful. Don't get me wrong. There's wonderful information in cookbooks, and and if you engage with that information, not as a a set of rules, but as a set of creative suggestions, and then you experiment with them, then the act of cooking is a whole takes on a wholly different um, quality of experience. Yeah, and and I would say probably a lot more fun, right? Oh, yeah. A lot more <laughs> positive, yeah. And you learn more, and then you bring more to the table, literally. Uh, <laughs> next time you cook, it becomes not yeah. a drag. It becomes something fascinating and beautiful and, you know, in many ways a privilege. I mean, we eat better now than the pharaohs did back in the day. I, lo I love you pointing that out, especially from my archaeological uh, background perspective. But um, but I think you have uh, that's an important point because um, we have access to all this and experience with all these different cuisines, and we can play with them. Mm -hmm. And the most amazing ingredients. Yeah, we're just so lucky. Yeah, that's true. Well, let me let me then though um, bring bring it back to because uh, I said a moment ago that I wanted to hear about hear you talk about your creative expression through writing, which is a different creative expression than music. Yeah. Um, and and um, so so I so, I mean uh, in the book you are you frequently bring in quotations from your students, people who have studied with you. Um, so that implies that the bright way is not something that you just thought up for this book, unless you've been writing the book for a long time, which is possible. I want to hear what, the, what your process was in, um, in learning how to do that with people and, and then how that became this, um, this, Actually, a very beautiful artifact. I, you know, I have to give the, your um, publishers credit. They, they created yeah. a very nice package. It's beautiful. Yeah, words. I really wanted it to be a work of art itself. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I have taught for about 25 years now. And so I, I've taught, you know, group music classes for three-year-olds, one-on-one lessons, um, group classes. And so in teaching, you know, you start to realize certain things become principles. They are things that you can rely on across time and space. And I found that um, over time, you become a better teacher and you realize, uh, <laughs> you realize what really works and what doesn't. And it was from this teaching experience that I distilled these principles. Uh, it was also from, you know, being an active musician and speaking with my colleagues about their experiences with everything and weaving that into the picture as well. So it was very, it was very hands-on um, how I gained that experience and you know, all my struggle with getting through performance anxiety, I did everything you can imagine, you know, uh, therapy, lots of yoga, Feldenkrais, beta blockers, 
everything you can imagine I did. And all those played a part as well. So as I go, went through these experiences, you know, I would share them with my students and say what worked for me, you know, and see what worked for them. And again, I would find distilling, distilling these principles that just worked over and over again. And a lot of my recovery from performance anxiety did involve spiritual work. So discovering the principles of alchemy and the operations of alchemy made a big, big impact on me, not to mention, of course, working with um, philosophers like Thich Nhat Hanh's work um, and other other spiritual paths, you know, I was taking, so it was really all these different sources that I was distilling and I would talk about them directly with my students. And over time, because I had managed to get through performance anxiety, which is so common in musicians, other people would come to me deliberately to find out about performance anxiety. Mm-hmm. And it was really in dealing with that, um, in large formats. So for example, I have a a membership program where I teach this program. I teach the Bright Way system. Uh, It was in these large scale formats that I really had to distill everything down. You know, I had to talk to a lot of people at once in a very concise way. Mm -hmm. It couldn't be, you know, a bit of this, a bit of that. It had to be very, very specific. And how the book came out of that was actually one of my members. It turns out she um, is a a dedicated amateur harpist, but she's also been in the book world as a publisher for decades, for her entire professional career. So she's the person who approached me to write a book about it. Hmm. Ah. So that's how it happened. Uh, Well, I mean, um, sure. But then you had to um, engage creativity in the um, in the world of writing as well. Yes. In the okay. realm of writing. Yeah. Okay. So I was really used to talking about all these principles, and I'd also been really used to writing them in my courses. So I had these online courses where I teach, and people watch the videos where I'm talking about it, and they, they download the transcript, and we do live Q&As and talk, 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 you know, through all this stuff. I had a lot of written material. Um, I also let, me just, let, me, let me just jump in here because I, I, I don't want to leave a question that was, came up for me a moment ago. You said large format. Does that include yeah. these sorts of online things or does that yeah. include? Okay. Um, okay. So I, just, yeah. I wasn't clear what you meant by large format. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, large numbers of people. Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. Because I really wanted the, the book to to have a timeless and universal tone to it. So in in that way, I want to get the experience of a lot of people. It can't just be me and 10 students that I happen to know. Mm. You know it has to be uh, a large pool of experience to me to have um, legitimacy in what I'm claiming will be the way to, a way to really engage your creativity and follow through on it. So... Um, So then in terms of writing, I was used to writing courses online. And I was also used to academic writing because I have a PhD in music theory. 
and my first drafts of writing were pretty hilarious. So, uh, <laughs> was that the result of the uh, uh, music theory <laughs> background? Both. Both. I mean, it was like, you know, uh, <laughs> on the one hand, I would try to get to the point far too quickly because I was used to teaching online where you need to go in and deliver the result as fast as you possibly can. Mm. You can't dither around talking about this part of my childhood or that or the, they don't mm -hmm. want to hear they want to know what can I do right now to get a result and mm -hmm. that's totally appropriate for that type of environment mm -hmm. um, and the academic writing is too non-personal I mean if you're going to write academically you can't be talking about your own personal journey that's going to actually delegitimize what you're saying you need to try and be as rational as possible so yeah, my first attempts at writing um, <laughs> careened between those two, <laughs> either being, you know, too theoretical or being too quick to the point. Mm -hmm. And the best piece of advice that I got um, from Claudia, uh, who is the person who set the whole book in motion, was remember what your reader is doing when they have your book in their hands. They're opening it up in their hands. It's an intimate moment. Where are they? They're perhaps in bed, in a very private place. They're mm. perhaps in the bath. <laughs> you know, it's a very enclosed space. Speak to them directly. They are looking to you to be their companion and to be their guide and talk to them that way as you would to a friend who's looking for guidance. And that required intense tapping into the heart, all about the heart. So every mm. single time I sat down to write after I finally hit my stride, it was I would get entirely into the state of whatever I was writing in writing about. So, you know, many drafts happened and Claudia would critique them. And finally, I realized that when she liked my writing, it was when I was completely vulnerable. And I really wrote from the heart. And it was writing from my true self, not from a place of ego. Because if we write from a place of ego um, and we're being vulnerable, it can kind of feel like you're trying to almost manipulate people, like make them make you feel better, you mm -hmm. know. Uh, and instead, when you're just like, you know what, this is what happened to me. And it was really, really hard. And I know it was hard. You know, and you come just from your true self when you say that, people will go, yeah, I understand. I understand. But if you write from a place more of ego, and you're like, it was really, really bad, you know, and I, and I want you to feel sorry for me. Then they, they're like, oh, God, I, this is not what I signed up for. So I found I really had to tap into the heart, and I had to tap into my true self when I was writing. And when I did that, the writing became far easier, and it became far more powerful and it's been an interesting phenomenon that people who've been reading the book have said, you know, I actually just started crying a huge amount when I was at this place or that part. And I was like, yeah, that's what I was doing when I was writing that part. 
And it was not from a self-pity place again. It was not from the ego space. It was from true self, you know, explaining, I understand what it feels like to feel that kind of divorcement from your creativity. And I do believe that energy, because I was so deeply in the energy, also very positive energy, you know. I would also be in times of great joy when I was writing, great hope, that it would translate very viscerally. Um, and I have to say I was tapping into something that I believe, and I would wager that you believe too, is that, you know, when we're in a certain state and it's a true state and we create from that state, the thing you create is embedded with that energy forever. So there's a resonance that goes into that thing that never leaves it. Like the business report you talked about much earlier on in this conversation. Yeah, you know, the energy flows out from it. Uh, there's a phenomenon that I mentioned briefly in the book called the Florentine syndrome. I think it's also mm -hmm. called Stendhal syndrome. Mm -hmm. And it's a, a phenomenon that happens in Florence where because there are so many amazing works of art in Florence, visitors who are encountering these works of art have something that looks like a nervous breakdown in front mm -hmm. of them. And in fact, paramedics are trained to deal with this situation because it's so common. And my feeling around that is because that great work of art was created with such intention there was such integrity and true self flowing through that the energy that is embedded in that thing is astonishing, astonishingly powerful. It's almost as if, you know, someone were to see in real life like an angel or something, like spontaneously appearing in front of them. And they would completely lose their minds because it's like so much magnificence, like... A, to encounter that kind of energy full force. So I believe that we can capture in our creative works very powerful sensations and experiences, and we can translate them on a very visceral level, um, even through a book. And, and that is why once I hit my stride with that type of writing, that I never had any creative block at all, none. Mm. And so that is one of the questions I've been getting quite a lot is how do you deal with writing block? And I actually did not have writing block after I hit this mm -hmm. realization that it's the same as with any kind of creativity. You've got to tap into your true self, tap into that heart energy, and then do the thing. And I had to do it repeatedly. So there was the skill side of that. Although I had no block, I certainly did a thousand million revisions. You know, I had seven people edit the book. I, um, By the way, that's, that's an instance of the, the advice you have in the book of asking for help, yes. which I think is a very important one. So much help. I got so, so, so much help. Yeah. It's crucial. I absolutely believe in the, the power of that. And part of that does come from, I think, also my classical music training. It's where we do mm. get used to people giving us feedback. Mm. Um, and I, I welcomed it. You know, I knew people had the best intentions uh, for the book and the message. And 
I did not take 100% of everything they suggested, but I surely, um, surely appreciated every single thing they said, and it definitely made for a better book. Hmm. Well, it, it also occurs to me that another point that you stress in the book is the principle of resilience. Mm. And and yeah. if you're if you're going through a process such as you've just described, where um, you're getting all all these suggestions and responses yeah. uh, to your work, the resulting work, assuming that you're coming to that to those to your response to the responses from the place that you describe, um, the work itself will then be more resilient than it would otherwise have been, right? Yeah, I love what you're saying. Absolutely. So, so it's, a, it, it's, it's an instantiation of, of, uh, of this <laughs> important principle. Honestly, yeah. uh, you know, we're, we're recording this interview in a time of pandemic, which people will look back on, no doubt. But one of the, one of the things that I've come to realize is, is that it, it's the, this principle of resilience is important um, in such times, but also for this creative process that you're talking about. Yeah. So in working with people on their creativity, you know, I'm encouraging them to be creative. And oftentimes that also involves some sharing of their creativity, mm-hmm. um, you know, with their circles, whatever those circles are. And both those things are asking a lot of vulnerability from people is to show up, tap into your true self and truly engage. That's a lot. You know, while I'm saying it's a very joyful process and makes you feel fulfilled, I know that it's also asking a lot. And so we want to build the resilience to be able to handle that kind of engagement with life. I I don't want to just get people all fired up and then basically off you go, do your thing and with no um, fortifying them with resilience at the same time. Mm-hmm. So to me, uh, resilience, which is definitely a major topic that I'm talking about at this moment with my, with all my teaching groups for sure. Um, one of the major ways to cultivate resilience is in step five of my system, of the Bright Way system, and that is called fulfillment. So fulfillment is where you sit there and you proudly own and recount the successes that you've had in your life and that you have right now. And you feel filled up with those successes. They don't have to be anything remarkable to anybody else. And they might be. It doesn't matter. It's that they are remarkable to you. And you truly own those beautiful and wonderful feelings of being being proud and being happy and being satisfied with what you've done. You really do take the time to celebrate what you've achieved. What that does is it builds up your resilience for those moments when it is tough mm-hmm. and when you maybe have more restrictions going on in your life or when things aren't going as well as you might have expected. Um, you know, I, I worked on this book 
almost full time for a year and a half. And on week two of its release, the pandemic hit, <laughs> which really uh, threw a wrench in the works regarding numerous things. But I you can, know, I can only imagine. <laughs> yeah. Right. So, uh, but I feel okay. I feel okay because I have um, really enjoyed so much of this process. You know, even the hard work, I enjoyed it. So I, it was not depleting me. It was still building me up. Mm-hmm. And as I see this whole situation unfold, as as I mentioned, you know, I'm really interested in history. I'm kind of looking at this historically. What do we need right now? Well, we definitely need connection and creativity. I feel it's okay. You know, yes, it's throwing a wrench in the works temporarily, but isn't the thing that I'm talking about creativity and connection? I think it's actually going to make those things come to the fore even more. So, you know what? I'm more excited about that. And I feel like, it, yeah, it's been called upon me right now to, to use my resilience in this moment. Just, you know, when I thought I could kind of sit back and enjoy, it's like, oh, no, no, you're, you're, you're back to work again. You yeah. know? And it's okay. You know, it's all good. Well, it is. It, is, it, it speaks to the, uh, that, that spirit aspect of community of now is the time for connection. And strangely, you know, unlike, you know, you mentioned 9-11 as a, uh, uh, here we can't group in the ways that we normally would group in uh, to allow the bodies to come together. Now we have to do it differently. It's a, it's interesting, and yet it's still the same principle that there's an op- opportunity to offer something to a group, whether it's a small group or a large group. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think it's really detailing the power of connection that we aren't allowed to gather physically at the moment. And it makes us realize, oh, wow, no, this really is a big deal. You know, being connected is a huge thing. Yeah, I totally agree. And and I'll just um, recount um, an experience that is incredibly fresh to me because it happened just before I showed up for this uh, conversation that we're having which was, I was at our spiritual bookstore, which has been going over 17 years and throughout that time has had a, a, a Thursday evenings uh, presenter series. Sometimes, mostly it's authors, and, but often uh, musicians as well uh, doing musical programs. And of course, we've had to suspend that since, um, since early March. And um, I got a phone call just before I came here from a representative of of an author um, who we've had in the store a couple of times. He's coming out with a new book. And their idea was to do some kind of online book launch event where I would do my usual thing to introduce the author. We'd make the book available for for sale, you know, uh, uh, ship ship copies. Uh, via the postal service to people who wanted to get a signed copy or something like that from the author. And I was like, this is such, this is such an awesomely creative way to respond to the circumstance of people uh, subject to shelter in place for their own good. So, yeah. um, so, um, 
So, I, so it only underscores this this point that you're that you're making for us here. Yeah. And I thank you for absolutely. it. Yeah. And absolutely. and when we can have you in the store, I want to have you in the store. Too. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to. I'd love okay. to. I, it'll be so nice to go up to Sebastopol, and you, I've actually been in your store. Ah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I love it. Yeah, as well, as, um, as a customer. <laughs> well, it's yeah. a, it's it's sort of surprising because uh, all those bookshelves are on wheels, and so we moved them back, and we can uh, get you know thirty seats in there. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah, yeah it doesn't, it doesn't look like it. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually, I had to do one of my book talks online. I had um, planned it for Venice Beach, and. Mm-hmm. Um, just everything everything went crazy so I went ahead and did it online and it was super fun I have to oh, say good. yeah it was lovely I did it on zoom so I think you'll have a good time doing awesome. it awesome yeah wonderful yeah so w- one question I had about you know as you talked about distilling all of the online teaching and the uh, uh, work with people you've done was that alchemical uh, uh, styling like the five uh, the cycle of five something that came before the books was that had you conceived of it that way or was, or did you need a template in order to organize things you know i'm always trying to find correspondences so my mom is an astrologer she's a professional astrologer and so i've always been very interested in astrology and so then as soon as you're into astrology you start getting into elements i also have read tarot cards since i was 16. so you're working with elements there you're also working with the hero's journey which is you know the major arcana so i'm always looking for these big systems and i love overlaying systems so for instance overlaying nature and the four elements and of course you know the fifth element being spirit right there is part of alchemy as well you know i'm always trying to correlate yeah, different systems of thought and um disciplines as yeah. well you know because uh, psychology is something i'm very interested in and carl jung was very influenced by alchemy when he discovered alchemy, he uh, felt legitimized in his decision to break away from Freud. It was really alchemy that that caused hmm. that for him. Interesting. Oh. Well, yeah, it is. Uh, uh, I found it interesting because I, I share that uh, interest, and hmm. I, in our our own spiritual background, uh, draws a lot from the Fourth Way tradition of Gurdjieff, and hmm. there the Law of Seven plays a big part which is the octave. Which, yes. And so there, there, there's ways of breaking things down into seven. There's ways of breaking things down into five or to four. And yeah. no one, he, go ahead. I mean, a lot of the reason I chose five is because of the pentacle, the, yeah. the, the star. Mm-hmm. And, um, and also just from teaching, I have to admit, you know, five steps is easier than seven. Yeah. You know? And, well, I, like, I, I like the alchemical because uh, the Western magical tradition makes use of that. And yes. really, the one cultivates in magical practice a relationship with the elements and, such yeah. that they manifest in lots of different ways. And depending on what you're doing, they may take different forms. And yet, those primal 
draws are there. And I, so I enjoyed that aspect of the book and that you brought alive in a different way, you know, the, um, uh, the elemental composition of creativity where I think, again, naively, we th think of fire as creative, and yet uh, uh, the, you show that creativity actually runs through all five of the elements, and that, that yeah. it is a process, and it's a regenerating process. That's right, yeah. I mean, without earth, for example, we don't ground any of our creativity. We just, like, burn with a big fire, and then that's it. There's nothing yeah. left. So we definitely want that earthy quality. And then with air, you know, we need that to come through, and... For me, that's learning. Um, so we want that rational part, you know, that really discerning eye that we bring to our creativity. Yeah. One of the uh, other aspects that spoke to me, I think, as a, uh, a business person was at mm. the, the front end of the process that you describe, you know, purpose and intention. And I, I think of, you know, so many times I've spent in, business circles where you're trying to figure out what your vision is and then what your mission is and trying to understand what are those differences? How do those differences uh, uh, ultimately inspire activity? So mm -hmm. I, I found that, you know, your examples are actually very helpful for me in terms of how a purpose is very different than a uh, intention. And, Extremely different. Yeah. Intention is different than a plan. I mean, it is. A, yes, a, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I, I love that you're saying this because oftentimes people think an intention is your purpose and it really isn't. You know, your purpose is something that's much grander that basically oversees your entire life. So, for example, you know, I creatively engage in order to encounter my true self. And in doing so, I hope to inspire others to do the same. You know, that's my complete purpose. So, I could have loads of intentions around that. There's so many different ways I could express that. Right. But if I say, oh, my intention is to write a book or my intention is to play the harp, um, you can see how that upholds the purpose, but that's not my entire purpose in life. Because what about when I finish the book? I have no purpose. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's all over. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, and also... yeah. I, as you say, I think the purpose, the purpose is a guiding star in a way, whereas the intentions change because yes. uh, I, I have intentions for particular uh, ends, but they all feed this, this deeper uh, sense or destiny in my life. Yeah. And, and something I love about that is that because your intentions are feeding your purpose, you're choosing intentions that feed your purpose, not ones that don't align with who you are. Because it's, it's easy to actually set intentions that aren't quite right for us. Yeah, actually. We always a, want to filter them. That's a, that's a uh, good point to mention here because uh, I think the, the condition of so many of us in our lives are that we're chronically busy. We, everyone, you know, says yes to so many activities and commitments and responsibilities. And the, what, what you offer just in that description of having a purpose and then choosing your intentions that align most strongly with your purpose is it gives you a loving way to say no. I think that's the words you use in the book, you know, that you don't, you don't have to say no 
in frustration or you know to blame exactly. the other person you, you can thank them for the opportunity but say no because i'd love you know love to help you but this is this is where i'm working right right and you know you're doing them a service because if your heart is not in it you won't do the best job possible there will be someone whose heart is in it and they will they will wear it better. I mean, a really mundane example is like when you're decluttering your house, for example, the Marie Kondo method. You know, she says when you decide not to keep something that you know doesn't spark joy, um, you say thank you very much, and you pass it on to someone who will make better use of it. And I truly believe when we pass on an opportunity that's not quite right for us, someone someone will wear it better. It's going to be okay. Mm-hmm. So um, there's a um, an aspect of of the book which um, I found really interesting. Um, you you, t- you talk. I'm trying trying to remember which uh, which uh, uh, step it was associated with, um, but it must have been I think the first or second, uh, which is negative self talk. And and I think that this is a a terrible plague. Mm-hmm. It's it's a it's an ongoing pandemic in mm-hmm. especially Western culture. Um, you've probably had more experience than I have. It sounds like from your life history, in seeing whether that's true more widely than just in Western culture. But certainly. Um, you know, you you offer uh, ways to to respond to that so as to remove that as an obstacle um, to creative to creative expression. Yes. And I and I'm I'm wondering if if there's more you want to say to our listeners right now about this this um, what I'm calling a plague mm-hmm. or a, or a terrible a, a set of habits that really. Um, constrict possibilities for people. Yeah, I think negative self-talk is completely negative. I don't see a single benefit to it whatsoever. Um, I do believe we can still hold high standards for ourselves without negative self-talk. And in the book, I talk about using discernment rather than judgment. Judgment is negative self-talk. So when we're judging... We're saying something is bad or even good. We may judge it as good. Mm-hmm. Um, I prefer to actually just say, is something working or not? That's discernment for me. And we don't stop there. We always say, why? So if something is working, why? We want to find out why. Because that points to your creative voice to the tools that are working for you it helps you in your learning it makes you more confident next time you're creative engaged creatively engaging because you know how the thing works and then you can build upon it even further so Mm -hmm. you progress if something's not working you also say why why is that not working rather than oh my god i'm so bad i should just stop I should run away or sometimes we don't even say anything to ourselves consciously we just stop doing the thing and it's really sad so um, by using discernment you will still make all the progress probably much more than you could ever even dream of um, 
that you might have been hoping to achieve through berating yourself with negative self-talk. Uh, in the book, I recommend using the five essential elements, so artistry, inspiration, learning, community, and technique, to address when things aren't working. Because if something's not working and we go, why? Oftentimes we're a little upset, and so we don't have somewhere to start. And having the five essential elements to filter ideas through can really give you a starting point to um, get back on the horse again after something doesn't work. Like, oh, okay, you know, for instance, community, bringing community into the picture. Well, who could I ask for help around this? You know, I'm kind of stuck on this problem. Or you might want to use learning. You know, what books can I use? Uh, what YouTube tutorials could I look at to get through this hump? So discernment to me is the antidote to... Um, to negative self-talk and I think it's no exaggeration to say that most people are um, having quite a great deal of negative self-talk that they they oftentimes don't even realize is happening mm -hmm. and part of what has happened for me is I've actually gotten to hear people say their negative self-talk out loud because they will shout at themselves when they're playing and make a mistake. I'm like, oh, and I actually had to do a little intervention on a student who um, is very, very spiritually aware, um, but she was saying these things to herself that I just couldn't believe. And I said, okay, stop. And I said, say, it, say what you're saying to yourself to my face. And she's like, I can't do that. It's just too horrible. I'm like, nope. I insist, say it to my face. And she's like, but I can't do that. I'm like, why do you think you can say that to yourself then? You know. And, but I made her do it. And she said it. And she's like, I'm never going to do that again. Because she couldn't actually see how bad it was. Mm -hmm. So oftentimes we don't realize just how toxic our negative self-talk is. Because that doesn't sound like a, such a horrific word, negative self-talk. Eh, mm -hmm. It doesn't sound great. But it doesn't sound like the actual devastating plague it really is. So I really appreciate that you're bringing up that it is a serious problem. And, you know, there's just no benefit to it. I think we want to eliminate it. And discernment is one of the major tools for that to happen. And another sort of immediate thing you can use is if you find yourself saying something negative, like, oh, I'm doing this really badly right now, you can say, use the but technique. Uh, you can say, yes, I'm doing this really badly right now, but I am going to go ahead and implement these steps to improve it. Because when you say but, you negate the thing that you said. You really don't want to say, um, you don't want to give it any credence, right? So I, I, I like putting a big but on it. Some people don't like the word but at all, and they prefer to say and or yet. Mm -hmm. And I can understand that, you know, if you really are allergic to the word but. But I kind of like the word but because it just says, forget that so negative self-talk. Got, <laughs> Got it. Well, we just have a few minutes left. Um, um, and well, I, I just uh, conceived of the idea um, that, uh, because because uh, our listeners can't see this, but we're uh, communicating with you via Zoom, and there's this great big harp right next to you. Yeah. And, I, and I'm wondering if you would um, mind just playing a little bit, whatever comes 
from sure. your <laughs> heart and creativity um, as a way to help us bring this to a conclusion. Yeah, definitely. Thank you so much. Thank you. That was lovely. That was wonderful. You're welcome. That's a little improvisation in Mixolydian mode. <laughs> <laughs> well, one time we had well, um, one of my favorite Thursdays at Many Rivers uh, events was our now regrettably deceased uh, friend Chris Caswell. Oh, who did, I know Chris. Yes. Yeah, yes, uh, he did, and he did a an improvisation um, on Middle Eastern uh, from Middle Eastern themes and and it it still stands out in memory and you um, you evoked some of that uh, <laughs> uh, memory for me just now that was that was Thank lovely you. I want to say just very quickly that I, I I view your book the bright way as being it seems to me it, it, it's meant as a corrective to the um, to the various ways in which negativity um, generate obstacles to um, to responses to the to the world to our experience that uh, stand in the way of of connection um, right. profoundly and I appreciate your giving us this time. Yeah. with you today you. and sharing your music as well with us. It's been <laughs> fabulous. Right. Uh, it's such a pleasure. So it's been a great every minute. 
Well, good. Well, we re really appreciated it and uh, appreciate you joining us on the Mystical Positivist. Thank you. You have been listening to The Mystical Positivist. This is your host, Stuart Goodnick. This week on the show, we featured a pre-recorded conversation with Diana Rowan, author of The Bright Way, Five Steps to Freeing the Creative Within, published this year by New World Library. Diana Rowan is a creative alchemist and founder of The Bright Way Guild, a virtual learning environment dedicated to transforming and inspiring a global community of creatives. Diana holds an MM in classical piano performance and a PhD in music theory. In addition to piano, Diana is an Irish harpist specializing in lever harp. She provides concerts, lectures, teachings, and recordings to a worldwide audience. Next on The Mystical Positivist, we feature a pre-recorded Zoom conversation with two of our favorite guests, Ken McLeod and Jim Wilson. Speaking from our respective bunkers of the California Shelter-in-Place Order, we will touch upon the relevance of spiritual practice in an age of social distancing, as well as the possibility and freedom inherent in moving discourse beyond mere critique and contradiction. After learning Tibetan, Ken McLeod translated for his principal teacher, Kalu Rinpoche, and helped to develop Rinpoche's centers in North America and Europe. In 1985, Kalu Rinpoche authorized Ken to teach and placed him in charge of his Los Angeles center. Faced with the challenges of teaching in a major metropolis, Ken began exploring different methods and formats for working with students. He moved away from both the teacher-center model and the minister-church model and developed a consultant-client model. Ken is the founder and director of unfetteredmind.org. He is the author of Wake Up to Your Life, Discovering the Buddhist Path of Attention, The Great Path of Awakening, An Arrow to the Heart, Reflections on Silver River, and his most recent book, A Trackless Path. Jim Wilson was a monk and abbot under the direction of his teacher, Sun San, a Korean Chogye sect Zen master. He served as a Buddhist prison chaplain, studied Western philosophy, co-founded Many Rivers Books in Tea in Sebastopol, conducts a website devoted to syllabic form haiku, and has penned and published many books of poetry. In recent years, his spiritual practice has centered on the Quaker Christian tradition. In addition to his many poetry volumes, he has published several books on spiritual matters, including On Trust in the Heart, a commentary on a famous poem by the third Zen patriarch, and an annotated edition of A Guide to True Peace. Tune in for that show on Saturday, April 4th from 4 to 6 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time. Thank you for joining us once again for The Mystical Positivist. Podcasts of all our shows can be found at www.mysticalpositivist.blogspot.com as well as commentary and discussion of topics of interest to the show. Also, please send comments and feedback to mysticalpositivist at gmail.com. Join us again next Saturday.